KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. Good morning, I'm Debbie Cruz. It's Friday, July 14th. How SDG&E reacts to a high natural gas bill brought to their attention. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. The San Diego County Water Authority has voted to negotiate with two North County districts that want to leave it to save money. The districts are in Fallbrook and Rainbow. As we reported previously, the districts want to go to a water wholesaler in Riverside County. An analysis shows the move could save them more than $7 million a year. But the Water Authority says it could leave the rest of the county with a tab of roughly $200 million over the next decade, and they were considering a lawsuit. In a vote yesterday, the Water Authority decided on negotiation rather than litigation. The county is joining in this weekend's Pride celebration with services for attendees. County Public Health Services will have the Live Well on Wheels set up outside the Pride Festival grounds on Saturday and free MPOX and COVID-19 vaccines will be offered from 11.30 a.m. to 5 p.m., and appointments are not needed. Inside the festival, the county will also be offering rapid HIV testing from noon to 7 p.m. on Saturday and from 11 to 6 p.m. on Sunday. If you're a registered voter living in District 4, keep an eye out for your ballot in the mail next week for the upcoming special primary election. The August 15th election is to fill Nathan Fletcher's vacant seat on the county's Board of Supervisors. Early voting begins Monday. You can send in your ballot through the mail or vote in person. And starting Tuesday, you can drop off your ballot at any of the registrar's official ballot drop boxes around the district. If no candidate receives a majority of the vote during the primary, a special general election will be held on November 7th. How SDG&E is reacting to an oversized natural gas bill after KPBS alerted them of the issue. There's no doubt uh, once there was human intervention uh, that we could have done better. More on that story coming up after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a blend of computer science, statistics, and domain expertise. Learn more about University of California San Diego's online Master of Data Science program at omds.ucsd.edu. Yesterday, we told you about Jack Babbitt's nearly $1,300 natural gas bill from January. Babbitt reached out to KPBS, looking for answers he couldn't get on his own. Environment reporter Eric Anderson has the story. Jack Babbitt's decades-old trailer home sits in a Fallbrook Valley that was pretty cold this past winter, but cold temperatures are not enough to explain his $1,282.53 natural gas bill in January. Babbitt's grandson, Doug Gastelum, said Jack has questions. Nobody follows the rules better than Jack. You know, retired Navy uh, chief, he's used to taking orders and he's used to doing what needs to be done. But he's also used to things being in order. Gastelum called SDG&E after the big bill and the utility told him the bill was accurate and nothing else was done. Babbitt's home has an analog gas meter 
that can only be read if someone actually comes out to the property. His San Diego gas and electric bills show that didn't happen for nine months before the huge January bill dropped. Anthony Wagner is an SDG&E spokesman. The bill says that there were nine estimates in a row, but in, in reality, uh, we went to Mr. Babbitt's home two or three days after we sent him the bill, and that happened several times. So while the bill identified an estimate, in reality, truthfully, we missed one estimate, and that was in November. It is an explanation that Gastelum is still struggling with. Like they told me that, yes, it says we did estimates for all these months, but really, we sent someone out to really read the meter a few days after the estimate, which just doesn't make sense to me. Estimated bills indicate much lower gas use in the six months before the January bill. Usage in January was 274 therms. He had a legitimate frustration, and there's no doubt uh, once there was human intervention uh, that we could have done better. KPBS contacted San Diego Gas and Electric on June 27th. The utility conceded the high gas usage in the months before January's bill was not accounted for in its computer's estimated readings. In October, November, December, he actually used 274 therms, but it charged him the 274 therms when the rate uh, was the highest in January at $5.11. Two days after KPBS brought the oversized bill and the estimated readings to the utility's attention, Wagner says SDG&E inspected the mobile home. We forensically looked at Mr. Babbitt's bill, and then we went out to the home and we checked each appliance. We shut off each appliance so that no gas uh, was going to the home. Uh, and then we checked the meter to ensure the meter was not registering uh, a leak somewhere. Castellum found a faulty heating duct three months after the big bill, which likely contributed to the unusually high usage. SDG&E turned down the water heater temperature. Babbitt got information on low-income and medical bill assistance, and he was promised the utility will bring in a third-party contractor for a complete home energy audit. The bill review also prompted the utility to recalculate the January bill, spreading the gas usage over the previous three months. Wagner says the result was a $351 bill credit. We did everything within our power. Uh, to ensure uh, that his bill uh, was accurately addressed. But we care, we get it, and we could have done better. Castellum appreciates the bill credits, home inspection, and information about ways to control gas bills in the future. But he's disappointed he couldn't get the same response on his own. We should not have had to talk to you to get the right result. We should have been able to do that by talking to SDG&E. Castellum says he looks forward to the energy audit and he hopes future bills are smaller and rely less on estimates. So Babbitt isn't hammered by an oversized bill next winter. Eric Anderson, KPBS News. The San Diego-based Utility Consumers Action Network regularly mediates bill issues with SDG&E and its customers. The Village Health Center at Father Joe's is now open after flooding caused major damage this past spring. Reporter Melissa May tells us it's just in time to treat its homeless clients 
who are experiencing the effects of the high temperatures. In March, a large pipe burst in the waiting room of the Village Health Center at Father Joe's. It caused major damage to the first floor of the facility. The health center provides services including primary care, dental, and behavioral health services, including substance use disorder treatment. Megan Parch is the chief health officer at the health center. She says the reopening comes at a critical time. More people seek out care when temperatures rise. On average, when we see the heat beginning, that's when a lot of folks really want to get out of the heat, and that's sometimes when those barriers to get into treatment seem a little less insurmountable. So anecdotally, we do commonly see that more individuals will come in when it's very, very hot or when it's rainy. Walk-ins are welcome, and no unsheltered individuals will be turned away if they cannot pay. In fact, the center has the resources to help secure insurance and identification, too. Melissa May. KPBS News. The city of Chula Vista is one step closer to having its own public four-year university after overcoming a legal barrier with the state. Reporter Jacob Ayer explains how a California law almost designated the university land as space for affordable housing. Local leaders like Senator Steve Padilla are celebrating the return of 383 acres of land in East Chula Vista for a future university and technology park. It comes after getting an exemption from the Surplus Lands Act, which says surplus public land must be made available to affordable home developers. There should be uh, a university, an institution, or institutions of higher learning in this part of the region. Uh, and I think that the, the basis for the exemption is to really help that move forward uh, more quickly because the demand and the need is now. Chula Vista is the only city in California with a population greater than 200,000 residents that does not have a nonprofit or state university within city limits. Jacob Ayer, KPBS News. Coming up, a local artistic director talks about why she chose to study the transgender singing voice. So that's my role then, is to how do I help my community love their voice, find music that speaks to where they're at and what they need to say. We'll have that story and more just after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. Music is an important part of the curriculum in the San Diego Unified School District, but it wasn't always that way. 33 years ago, a local music teacher decided to do something about that. Reporter John Carroll tells us about the band at the beach. In the band practice room at Correa Middle School in Ocean Beach, rehearsal is underway for the band at the beach. Not literally at the beach, but close enough. Retired music teacher Del Schroeder founded the yearly camp back in 1990, and she still plays right along with the kids today. I love to play with the kids. It's fun. It makes me do better. What do you get out of doing this? There's a three-letter word for that. It's called joy. 
Thirty-six kids and several music teachers are participating this year. The music teachers function as section leaders. I play the alto saxophone. That's 15-year-old Maggie McAteer. She says getting a week of intense practice during the summer is great, but that's not the only reason she loves this band camp. You build this sort of community, um, even if you don't necessarily go to the same school as them. It all wraps up Friday afternoon at 3 in the Korea Theater. Admission is free. John Carroll, KPBS News. San Diego Pride will recognize several community leaders at this week's festival. One of those annual awards is the Larry T. Baza Arts and Cultural Award, named after the local longtime arts and LGBTQ advocate who died in 2021. This year's recipient is Lindsay Deaton, a local musician, playwright, and conductor who is a leading expert on the transgender singing voice. She's founder and artistic director of the San Diego Queer Youth Chorus, and before that, she founded the Trans Chorus of Los Angeles. She spoke with my colleague, Jade Heinemann, about her story and why she chose to study the transgender singing voice. Let's start with your background. You're a musician and you'd been a conductor for decades before your transition. Would you mind sharing with us a little about that journey? Surely. So I am a child of the border. I grew up here in San Diego and later graduated from San Diego State with a degree in classical guitar studying with Celine Romero. And um, while I was at San Diego State, I you know, just fell in love with, with choral music, orchestra music. And one day picked up a baton and started studying hard while I was at SDSU and was fortunate enough to get a uh, scholarship to go to Carnegie Mellon. And then on to New York, where I, I did some studies at Juilliard. And after my MFA, I was fortunate to go to the Aspen Music School and then moved to New York, where I was a conductor with the Hudson Valley Philharmonic. It was in that capacity that I and my family moved to Cincinnati, Ohio, and ended up sticking there for 30 years. We raised a family there. And while there, I began a new vocation, if you will, working for the Catholic Church. And I was a cathedral music director for a decade when in my mid-50s, I transitioned. And uh, it was a brutal experience in terms of my jobs. I lost them all and we lost our house, but I was fortunate to be able to maintain my marriage. And my wife had a good job with Kroger and my children kept me. And so that's the, the long version of the transition. I mean, how has that experience influenced the work you do today? Well, Jade, it informs me with an incredible sense of urgency. I am going to be 68 years old in September. You know, I would have thought that our country and our world would be in a much different place 10 years after my transition, Jade. And we're just not. Um, I'm very fortunate. I'm very privileged. You know, I'm a white trans woman um, who isn't often accosted or, you know, traumatized with violence. That is not the same for my siblings, you know, especially for, you know, those who are in uh, the, the POC community. And 
it's getting worse every year and it's getting worse for trans kids in particular. And so I just have a, an incredible sense of urgency, number one, on their safety, the uptick in suicides, the uptick in murders. Yeah. And, you know, given all that, can you talk about why you've committed to studying the transgender singing voice? I mean, is there a lot of research? Well, there is now. So when I started back in um, 2014, there was no, nobody was doing dissertations for few. There were few, like two. Now, you know, academia is rife with, you know, new dissertations and thesis on, on trans voices, non-binary voices, et cetera. And, you know, where I, I work is in the practical application. You know, how, how do we sing, you know, and, and how do we sing like we feel best? And what needs to happen so that happens, right? And uh, you can hear my voice right now. And my vocal cords have been subjected to testosterone, right? And so as soon as a vocal cord is, you know, hit with testosterone, it lengthens and thickens and the register lowers. It's science how this happens. And with science, we know that with estrogen, the opposite does not happen. You know, once a, a vocal cord lengthens and, and uh, thickens, that's what it is. Except now we have new methods of surgery that, that some trans folks are opting for. And in my experience, the people that I know who are really cared for that have gone through that are very, very discouraged, um, have been through a lot of vocal reconstructions, aren't able to sing anymore. And so, you know, what I'm, I'm doing is really working on fiercely empowering trans voices, you know, and non-binary voices to love their voice and to use them, you know, sing out and, you know, back into the academia part of our art, you know, I, I'm white, I'm uh, a child of colonists, right? And the music that I grew up in was primarily European English. Right. And so as we grow up here in the United States, the textbooks that are used by and large come out of Texas and they're absolutely white centric patriarchal. And so the music that we grow up with, that we teach our children has a great deal of influence on how they are socialized generally. And fortunately, there's new, you know, methodologies of teaching music like Carl Orff or Zoltan Kodai or Jacques Dalcroze that incorporate the whole body, you know, in teaching and, you know, aren't necessarily dependent on that Western ideal because the world is filled with glorious music. So that's my role then is to how do I help my community love their voice, find music that speaks to where they're at and what they need to say. That was Lindsay Deaton, founder and artistic director of the San Diego Queer Youth Chorus, speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host, Jade Heineman. If you or a loved one is having thoughts of suicide, contact the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. That's it for the podcast today. This podcast is produced by KPBS producer, Emmeline Mohebi and edited by KPBS editor Joe Karen. As always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Debbie Cruz. Thanks for listening, and have a great weekend. <laughs>